Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Scaffold, a new podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Bunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the artist Pablo Bronstein. Pablo is an Argentinian and British artist based in London whose work spans from drawing to choreography and performance, always with a focus on architecture. I met with Pablo last November at his studio in Bethnal Green, where we talked about, among other things, the harsh reality of the art market, the historical construction of human gestures, and the relationships between irony and sexuality in his work. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. So, just speaking about biography for a bit, you were born in... Um, Argentina, but moved to the UK at a pretty young age. Yeah, and grew up in Neesden. Yeah, well, first it was Wolves and Green, but it's all it's always that bit of it's always that bit of of, of London until I um, started doing my MA and moved to the East End. But if not, I was always there. I I, I try. I mean, I I applied to various universities. I went to UCL very briefly to study architecture. Uh, lived in Camden for a few weeks or so. That was like a month, right? That, that was like literally a month. No, actually, it was probably about a, a little bit less than a term, but, you know, I fucking hated it. So why, why the attraction to architecture in the first place and why the, this, the immediate repulsion? Well, um, I, I think when a, when a child draws something, the, especially if, if you don't come from a country like England, where there is such a thing as a being, you know, being an artist as a job. If you're, if you're, a, you know, if you have Argentinian parents or whatever, third world parents, where being an artist is, I mean, it doesn't even exist as, a, as an idea. Um, if a child draws a picture of a fire engine, you don't think, oh, that's going, you know, my child's going to be an artist that draws fire engines. You think my child wants to be a fireman. Um, and I would draw buildings compulsively um, in one way or another, and it was always related to sort of stories, you know, whatever it might be, but witches' castles, whatever. Um, but by the time... Um, and, and I've maintained that rather fantasy idea of architecture until I got to the Bartlett, um, thinking that I would be able to sort of impress with my design of a sort of cathedral or whatever it might be, and... And it didn't, and they were doing these kind of awful. I can't describe what that what that sort of thing was that they did. I sort of think they kind of work a bit like this now. Still, it's this kind of fact finding 
art style. It's or some, how, to, how to describe it. It's like a kind of they do these weird, random, shitty experiments, and that by kind of conceptual art standards, they are low, low grade. And out of that sort of nonsense that they produce, they sort of find random crap has been generated, and they make a project out of that. Oh. And by that, I mean, I mean the stuff that they were doing was, I mean, it was eye-opening. Um, so this was what the late eighties that you were. No, 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 um, no, it was the late nineties. I looked like an old bitch, but no, I, it's, <laughs> just the, it's just the crazy. I know you were born in nineteen. Yeah, it's actually yeah, it's sort of yeah, it, it's not, it, it's sort of the mid mid nineties actually. Okay, uh, but those people are still teaching now. I mean, mm -hmm. and 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 I'm sure they produced lots of successful artists, uh, architects. But uh, the problem that I had was that I kind of knew that as cultural product. It, that wasn't very good, you know. But yeah. I mean, so the sort of thing they might do would be like, you know, it, it, maybe they'd be asked to come up with a building with a keyword around, or, or, or an idea around architecture that had to do with an exploration of force and impact, or whatever it might be. Uh, or not even that, maybe it'd be about something else. Fuck knows what the brief would be. Um, and then someone would like get a crash helmet and they'd like smash it against the floor. And then they would like take a detailed measured drawing of like one of the sort of impact smashes on the helmet. <laughs> and then they would, you know, make some kind of a sort of thing out of that. I mean, that's how lame it was, mm -hmm. you know. Because it's like, that's a really specific experience of architecture school that I think maybe still might characterize a place like the Bartlett today. But it's right. not really, it's not actually architecture. Right. But... Was it that specific way of teaching that pushed you away or did you kind of, it sounded like you knew coming in, if you were proposing uh, designs for cathedrals and, uh, and castles and whatnot, that you were coming in with a very specific sensibility. I was. I mean, in a way, I, I think I grew up very, very quickly in that, in that sort of couple of months because I think I came in with an absolutely deluded idea of what architecture was. But very quickly, I felt that the, the architecture that was being developed there was utilising a very deluded idea of, of art, you know, of conceptual art and of a kind of research-based practice. Mm. Um, and so I, I kind of legged it over to... I applied first to the Slade. I thought I could just jump over, but I didn't get accepted. So I went and did a foundation at St Martin's and then I went to the Slade the next year. Mm. So it's like, it sounds like you're bringing something... Uh, really specific uh, in, into school, be it architecture school or art school, that has to do with um, a certain historical period. I don't know if you discovered that during school or if this was actually, um, in fact, something that had been a preoccupation of yours for a while. I remember reading an anecdote somewhere that you had decorated your room as a 16-year-old in as like a Baroque. Yeah, you know, it's a really tragic thing. Yeah, it's a really tragic thing. Because I was very, you know, I mean, I grew up in, I grew up in the suburbs, which is a kind of, I mean, you probably know this because Vancouver is just one big suburb, mm -hmm. um, that you, you have a very um, introspective existence there. You're, you're not primarily a kind of social being. You're kind of an autodidact and you're sort of staring out the window a lot, like a lot. Boredom is... You know, just you don't even see it because you're bored all the time. Like that, it's not even like you're bored all the time. You don't ever expect anything particularly exciting to happen. You know, mm. um, or to I mean, maybe you hang out with your friends once a week, and then the other days you're just kind of staring out because there's 
you know, and, and so in that time you kind of self-form. Um, but it's, I mean, and a lot of interesting things come out of the suburbs. I think a lot, a lot more than say inner city kids that are very, very clued up. But it seemed like what you're saying is that, you know, growing up in a suburb, um, yeah, there's a lot of time to, to be introspective and to think, to kind of form yourself as a person. Yes. Um, but there's something stylistically going on in the suburbs too that piqued your curiosity. It, there, there, there was. Certainly there is a sense of, there's a sense of, um, well, the suburb that I grew up in is an Edwardian and Victorian and 1930s suburbs. But these houses are, were really pretty pretentious and fantastic constructions, you know, slightly baronial, some or arts and crafts, others, you know, it's a kind of real mix. I mean, always middle class, semi-detached houses. They were never, you know, it's not like kind of Hampstead level splendor. And very, very, you know, they'd now been sort of clad in pebble dash and so on. But even then, I think I was trying to mentally strip away a lot of the gunk that had accumulated. And I was trying to get back to the idea of an original thing. But a lot of that might have had to do with a sense of my own sort of class humiliation. You know, this idea of grand architecture being something that was mine by right. And I'd been denied it because I was growing up in a tiny... Um, tiny it, sort of Edwardian terrace house with, you know, two rooms on the first floor and two rooms on the ground floor, you know. And what were you coming from in Argentina? What did you leave behind? I, th I mean, I was born in a in a pretty nothing special little modernist flat on the 10th floor of a high rise. It wasn't as if, you know, I'd come from Splendor, but my grandmother's house was very spectacular. And I think I'd always sort of been very drawn to that you know that that was enough to give me a sort of dose and when we went back to Argentina we would sort of be in this fabulous you know thing um with big fireplaces and whatever you know I want to like talk more about that actually this like attraction to a particular sensibility a particular style mm. um like early on in your life well I think that the yeah okay um so the style of my grandmother's house was um it's this very particular argentinian um mix of old world and um and incorrect languages um mixed together and made by first generation uh, old world immigrants. So the style of the houses that were being built in my grandmother's uh, affluent area of Buenos Aires were being, and the whole of Buenos Aires really, was being constructed by Italian craftsmen that were coming over by the shipload because they were starving in Italy. Um, and so the, unlike the kind of filtered and very sort of warped ornamentation for, of the rest of Latin America, even Brazil, actually. Um, Argentina, Buenos Aires, preserves a real sophistication when it comes to ornament, but it has all been mishmashed in a sort of fin de siècle style. You could very happily have a sort of English ground floor and a French first floor and a Germanic attic, even on an exterior. Um, and all of these houses around there were, were, were really like that. Um, and so there was this sense of 
kind of well-executed fakery about it all. Um, it was all very thin in a weird way, a little bit like a kind, a little bit like those sort of um, magnate uh, houses of the sort of uh, robber barons in Newport and those kinds of places that it just feels like the entire building exterior as well as interior has been done by a decorator. And the idea that my grandmother had the decorators in was something that was unheard of in England at the time. People painted their own little hovels and no one had cleaners and certainly no one had servants. And in Argentina, those things are what every middle class person has. My, my grandmother wasn't an aristocrat. She was the wife of a, of a family doctor. But in Argentina at the time, a family doctor could have a big house with a couple of servants. So there's this intrigue around like the thinness and the brittleness of of surfaces and how um, in a way um, what's been expressed like in the built world around you is quite artificial or fake. There's a, a facade is really exactly that, just a facade. Um, and you're kind of taking, it sounds like you're taking this interest in, in posturing and fakery or in um, kind of um, artificial outward appearance and you're trying to explore that somehow through uh, the art you're making so like mm -hmm. taking those ideas into art school initially yeah how did you settle on these elaborate pseudo historical uh, pen and ink drawings well um i think art school is, is a little bit of a process of pretending wearing certain clothes and then realizing that those clothes really don't fit if you're lucky enough and strong enough to realise those clothes don't fit, then you can save yourself. If not, you're fucked. And so many people lose their entire identity through the art school process and they, they leave having been sort of debased and fucked over. And then they, they end up with absolutely nothing. It's a heart, art school is a heartbreaking disaster and no wonder it isn't qualified to get people, you know, livings as artists. You know, it, it's not, they're not allowing people to be sort of genuinely true to themselves. So what kind of clothes were you trying on and when did you oh, realise they didn't? I yeah. made sort of, I made sort of spurious film posters at Goldsmiths, you know, that kind of shit. Or I, at the Slade, the first year, I think I was a, um, I painted these kind of Ken Kith style landscapes that were slightly surreal and, um, and at foundation I was kind of like a cubist I mean you know whatever random shite um or I made like sort of photo essays of like roads whatever um but most people debase themselves even more than that I mean that the stuff I've mentioned I could kind of put within a framework that's identifiably mine but the amount of junk that is identical in art school is truly heartbreaking I mean, but you know this through architecture. I mean, it, the majority of the stuff that is made by young people is really similar one thing to the next, you know. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds like my adolescence generally writing horrible, embarrassing poetry. <laughs> <laughs> but how, so you were kind of debasing yourself for a while, experimenting with different forms. And then at what point did you realize that I had a you final on something? I had a final freak out um, at Goldsmith when... I can't remember what happened, but I sort of, I just start, I just started doing drawings again. Um, I think I, I, I made a series of drawings of some hypothetical Borromini churches, and they were so wonky and shittily drawn. 
Um, but they felt just like they gave me so much pleasure. You have no idea. Um, Why? Well, just because, you know, because it was, how can I say, because one of the reasons why art school is so toxic is because it instills a kind of group control. So you kind of internalize these, um, these seminar voices of essentially people rounding on anything that's a little bit different um, and anything that isn't sort of boy art or vagina exploration what is boy art? boy art might be like, you know, quite funny, uh, sort of conceptual light, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, jokey shit, like, you know, half a rabbit with a something stuck in it or whatever. Um, or, um, or big painting and even that's, you know, there are certain things and if you're even remotely in between these things, you're fucked in a seminar. And I because I happened to be a sort of bitch from hell, it became quite easy to defend myself. So I didn't feel too bullied by that. But I definitely internalised voices um, to the point where I just, I felt that I was, you know, making work for a seminar rather than for, you know, anything that I could understand as being important in my life. Somehow, I guess I've like totally missed miscast what art school is or ought to be. I mean, I've never really been inside of one, but in, in my mind, I'm sure a lot of people just assume that in art school, anything goes. It's one of the most liberal kind of accepting and encouraging environments to do creative work in, but it doesn't sound like that at all. It's not like that at all. Uh, it, it, I mean, every, every single person produces exactly the same thing. I mean, it, or, <laughs> I mean, it, it's just, I don't even teach in art school anymore. I, it just depresses me. I always say no, I can't, I can't bear it. Um, I've got nothing to say to these kids that have bullied themselves into making these awful things that they are assuming galleries want to show mm. and that their tutors are going to be happy with. I'm imagining someone in art school right now listening to this conversation. Like, what do you have to say to them? Just drop out. <laughs> Get the fuck out of there. <laughs> Um, but you did a, you that did a said, master's in... I did. I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm in particular sort of bitching about my MA, uh, which was the point at which sort of art is professionalised in theory. BA is still a bit freer. Uh, and my BA at the Slade was really pretty free, I have to say. And I had a great time. I mean, I had a great time pretending I was a serious painter. You have this beef with the art world, it sounds like. Oh, well, it's, I mean, I'm only being a piece of shit, really, because I, because <laughs> I I, in actual fact, I've survived a very long time in the art world, by art world standards, and I've been extraordinarily lucky because I've always had a very, very tight-knit support structure around me, which is a couple of very, very loyal galleries who treat me very well, a few very, very loyal curators, some fans that like the work very much, some supporters that have helped me form it and twist it and make it better, like Catherine Wood, for example, or Gary Tintro. There's, there's a few people that have really enabled me to think my practice along better lines. Um, what was your first solo exhibition? Uh, it was at Herald Street in 2005, I think, or six, and it was one of the first shows they did when they moved to, to the space in the, in the East End. And um, how did that kind of come to be? Who was behind that? Well, Nicky Verber and I'd been at the Slade with him. He just stopped making art and became a gallerist. And so I, I was very lucky. I graduated art school and already had a gallery there set up. 
which is very, very few artists get that. They normally have to sort of literally suck penis to get to get a show. It's terrible. Um, but the um, the the problem with the, the way that the market, the art market works at the younger stage is that it wants to create and generate art as an interchangeable commodity. And for that, you need to have an object or a type of object that has a sense of inter interchangeability, uh, which is why a lot of the auction houses, when they sell young art, they are shameless in their juxtaposition of young art. So you've got on one catalogue page, there is a painter that does small dots on red. There's another painter that specialises on with medium dots on red or left to right diagonals, right to left diagonals, and they're different artists, and they're being sold in that way. Totally shameless. Um, and so in art historical terms, what people most look for is instant market recognisability, right? So you want to walk into a room and say, that's a go-gown. Um, the young art world doesn't function like that. It functions on... Um, on sort of how many are they producing? Um, will they go up in value? Will I be able to sort of swap them for something comparable later on when they do? So the kind of laziness and the money grubbingness of the art world, I feel, has sort of shortchanged me. As ridiculous as as I'm, I mean, I'm I'm aware that I'm sounding like a piece of shit because I've had a very very good run, but I'm not a millionaire, and there are millionaires out there who make terrible work. I mean, you've been so steadfast in the um, the type of work you produce. To me, it's pretty obvious what what work is by you. I mean, it's very clear. It's either these these um, what do you call them? Spirograph? I call them pen and ink. They, these yeah, these pen and ink drawings. Sure, they are. The yeah. Portraits of buildings, pseudo historical in nature. Sure. Uh, usually, a very deep sense of irony in celebrating to the point of criticizing. Yeah, um, um, overpraising. Overpraising, yeah. yeah. And then there's also this line of work that has to do with these gigantic, elegant architectural murals. Yeah. Uh, with some kind of choreographed uh, dance in yeah. front of them. The, the the dance can happen without that stuff. Mm -hmm. Very often it does, um, and the murals can just exist on their own. But so yeah. there, there's like there are categories of work now um, for you. Do you ever feel pressure to? Uh, this is more like a business term, but diversify. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about how you collaborate with people like Catherine Wood or other curators. How much of a sway or influence does a curator have on the performance work or even the drawings you do? Well, the drawings, none at all. Uh, the performances are totally different because the performances normally in very social spaces and very often curators know those spaces very well. Um, that said, I have a very good relationship with a few curators in the world, Catherine being one of them, and they know my work intimately. Whenever curators get involved and what they want to tell me is to make it more fun or to make it more whatever, then that is always a disaster. Mm -hmm. In fact, the few times that I've made work to satisfy social occasions um, in museums have normally gone rather badly, um, I think, and I've not been happy with the results. Um, the market makes some demands. Uh, I'm, some of these works are going to Hong Kong, Basel soon, and 
uh, they're, they're going to be very brightly colored <laughs> you know uh-huh. um, in terms of um, you know, how ideas are conceived or developed um, is it all interior I mean aside from the drawing like writers have workshops for example uh, you test out uh, a notion maybe with a, a, a group of people or someone close to you like what is your such a cliche question but what's your creative process Pablo oh no that's fine um, so there are people that are very involved in it my partner is very involved in he sees a lot of stuff my gallerists see a lot of stuff especially Nicky Berber I mean he, he really is kind of he's got a kind of catalogue memory of my drawings um, if you have to find the good curators um, there are some that have and these are really few in the art world despite the the kind of pretensions there are very very few curators that have a general art historical structure in their minds most of them don't um, most of them are purveyors of trends and you ask them why something is good or what it means in the longer run or who really is in the canon and why and they have no idea whatsoever I want to talk a little bit more, more about trends actually because I feel like in this particular cultural moment postmodernism is really hot Oh, did you read what's his face is thingy into zine? Is it uh, what the former fat? Yeah, text? yeah, that was fun. Um, but um, it I, seems like the culture. Adam Nathaniel Furman, I think, totally lost his rag over that. Did you read? The yeah, comments? I read his response as well. I uh, don't know him actually, so I'm I'm only going by what the comments were. Mm-hmm. But what what do you make of all of that? And the fact that in a way your uh, your type of art now is being embraced culturally, it is becoming quite trendy. Well, I think it's, I mean, certainly, I mean, the art world, it became quite trendy a good few years ago, and then it's sort of since fallen out of favour. In the architecture world, I think it's a different thing. But, I mean, uh, my interest in it has never been about a genuine revival, you know. Uh, The idea of designing that way is sort of stomach, you know, churning to me. Mm. I mean, I, I can't. I can't imagine wanting to see these buildings necessarily. I, I find them appalling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you not? Um, I don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's just interesting to see that this fascination, not necessarily with revival, but with uh, architectural quotation, um, is, is very current and it's very much uh, on the minds of people designing buildings today. But I think what, what I'm curious about, you know, in asking you this question is, um, despite the fact that uh, yeah, at one point, maybe earlier on in your career, the art you were making was very much outside of uh, the mainstream and outside of what the art world was maybe expecting of contemporary artists. Sure. Whereas now, um, I mean, it's it's making the cover of Dezine. I uh, I'm a bit of a contrarian. I mean, the sort of move towards the pseudo-Georgian the interest in these buildings which is really genuine and and very autobiographical i've always looked at these buildings and noticed them um i remember being in neesden when the first historically tight cul-de-sacs were being built and mm-hmm. being completely fascinated by them so you're um, talking about Tudor georgia and the rise of conservatism which is a show on at the riba right, right. so so uh, my interest in that stuff i mean i I'm not interested in, in this 
style being sort of re reclaimed as something that's worth quoting from in a way. I, I think I'm interested in looking at this stuff from a pretty journalistic point of view, from a or sociological point of view, to say we, we live in these buildings, we make them. Do you know what I mean? Um, and that's sort of what the show is about. It's a sort of a, a spotlight on them. Um, I guess I'm being a little bit of a dick because I'm lumping in some Quinlan Terry buildings along with, you know, some shite on Hackney Road. Um, and a lot of classicists are going around clutching their pearls over that. Um, but I don't think a member of the public can tell the difference, do you? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but the, it seems like the kind of... I have your two books here. The first is Postmodern Architecture in London, which is based off a, a guided tour you gave, what, 10 years ago? As a part of the... What was it? Yeah. Freeze Art Fair? Yeah. Um, and then the pseudo-Georgian London book, mm -hmm. which just came out this year. Mm. They're both in the same spirit, in a way, of overpraising. Yeah. Except that... Uh, overpraising a particular style of architecture, mm. um, which is yeah, um, a kind of revival of the historical style. Sure. That you can take delight in, in terms of the kind of absurdities and excesses and um, and the kind of the kind of tragicness of of this type of architecture trying to um, puff its chest out or present itself in a way that's much more inflated than it actually is. Um, Except that in the pseudo-Georgian project, it seems like you're kind of recalculating or you're, re you're reassessing these buildings and, and it's not entirely ironic anymore? Or you're trying to find a way of genuinely appreciating this stuff? Well, I, I, I feel that I am... I, I feel that I'm doing that with the postmodern one also, but... Because um, I, I do genuine, I mean, in, in a way, the sort of affection for it comes in the in the drawings, um, and it's true that the drawings overpraise, you know, these things. But it, I enjoyed drawing fiddly columns and ornamental frames around things as much as I enjoyed drawing the buildings, and so it's quite easy for me to overpraise something. Do you know what I mean? I could just sort of make, you know, it's it becomes. I mean, I, I'm from a generation that sort of lives, enti lives entirely within kind of irony, you know, so everything is a quotation or everything is double-sided, everything is good and bad. Um, so I, I you know, I, I view them both very similarly, actually. I, I think that the difference for me is that the one style really relates to a kind of past trend the postmodern um, that that was really sort of coming in from on high, and the other touches on very very working class and vernacular buildings, which is which I thought was going to cause more fuss than it did actually. The postmodern revival thingy upset more people than the the fact that I'm talking about quite sort of low end buildings, you know. There's normally a sort of big scandal when a middle-class kid points at something that's working class and says, look at that, you know. Um, you, you said you come from a generation that uh, uh, kind of trades in irony. Mm. Could we talk a little bit more about irony in your work or irony in your life? Or? Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, well, 
if I if I have to try to understand my my sort of taste, um, I'm constantly aware that it's not good taste. Um, but why why I'm interested in irony? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly. The artwork that I've always been interested in has been ironic and very heavy on quotation. As a child, I loved child. I mean, as a teenager, I loved the work of Peter Greenaway or Derek Jarman. Um, so, and I grew up with you know eighties art. You know, that's that was what was around. It was all ironic. Um, Beetlejuice, you know, yeah. whatever. Edward Scissorhands. In an interview, you gave for a, a Tate shot uh, episode based on your historical dances in an antique setting performance in the Duveen Galleries last year. You talked about irony there as well, but then you kind of linked it to sexuality. Sure. Very briefly at the end. And well, like, could, you, could you expand on that relationship a bit? I was kind of hoping you'd go there, actually. Well, I mean... I... Sure, I mean, I can't remember what I said. But it had to do with having a sort of uh, a sort of public persona and a private persona, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that applies to all sorts of all sorts of identity, not necessarily one sort of rooted in sexuality and sexual identity, um, but. Sure. I mean, you know, you, you grow up as a, as a young gay man pretending you're something you're not. Uh, and you identify all movement and behaviour as somehow a performance um, or as a series of poses. Um, what you realise is that some people make those poses very automatically, uh, that they are entirely within culture. Um, and being gay, uh, I don't like the word queer because I don't really know what it means anymore. Um, but growing up gay, you sort of, when it was still a taboo thing, certainly in the playground, I mean, now kids are out when they're sort of 10 or 15 or whatever, but certainly that was impossible in my when I was younger. Um, the, the, the feeling was that you had to sort of, you know, walk a particular way or stand a particular way and that people were going to find out that there was going to be some inner truth that was going to be exposed some ghastly secret if you've you know held a teacup the wrong way or if you you know whatever um and at the same time there's uh, a kind of always a, a a push to sort of self-revelation and celebration um certainly with with me in any case and that meant that the kind of that sort of duality, the sort of secret me was very often very close to self. I mean, I was aware of it and I, it would sort of come out in rather daft pushes at liberation, like these, this, this interior you know, that I painted when I was 16 in my bedroom or 15 with loads of classical columns and Baroque curlicues and things, not a teenage boy's bedroom. Mm -hmm. um, so there was that, but there's also... Um, There's also a sort of sense, I think, that is that irony made well. Irony made quite a lot of sense in the nineteen eighties and nineties because um, the kind of 
the, the, the general movement in culture amongst creative people was that if you wanted to get anything done um, and if you wanted to be <clears throat> out there in, in the world and to make things, <clears throat> that you had to kind of admit that you were, that you were sort of evil. M most, most people that make culture uh, consider themselves quite left-wing. And yet, a lot of the opportunities that take place in the cultural world are facilitated by money and cultural institutions that may have a very different ethos. And so there was this slight... I mean, there was a guilt. There are some people that never left that sort of left-wing position, but there's also a, a sense that I found with with culture, um, generally a lot of films, for example, that, um, uh, how do I say, that, that, that you might have hated Thatcher, but you were still going to sort of dance along to the tune somehow. Um, and that you were sort of playing the game and that you had an internal life that you knew it was wrong, but you were doing it. And, I, I, so, so I, you know, I, I feel quite like that about a lot of my exchanges with the art world still. Um, I find nonetheless that within this sort of series of mirrors and ironies and things, that there is a sense of quite strong personal identity. I was actually teaching with Sam Jacobs. We went to, from Fashion Architecture Taste, we went to teach in Munich for an evening. We did a lecture there um, in the university. Sam and I were sort of talking in, in the lecture about essentially not really believing anything we say and whatever, you know, kind of everything has its sort of sense of a veneer or something like that, that everything is, is play. And one of the students this sort of 25-year-old girl um, had a... She really sort of was, was very, very unhappy and pretty confrontational while we were having dinner about it. And she said that she did not understand what that was about not, not entirely believing yourself. In other words, she was saying that what she says she means and that she has no real internal questions that are to do with validity and truth um, and I st and, and my, my friend Matthias basically said that this question of irony is very generationally generationally rooted and it did make me think that I mean I've always said that people under the age of uh, 25 don't really have any subconscious you know there's just <laughs> nothing really there or rather there's a lot there but it's just the same all the way through um, <laughs> Um, but one of the things that that I sort of feel about that is that the experience of that, that in, in order to feel that you're that you're sort of simultaneously lying and telling the truth is because there is a you there somehow there is a sort of core at the center of it that is able to still perceive the difference between truth and lie um, whereas with the majority of young people, and I am excluding sensitive young 
architects from this equation. Um, the majority of young people have a very different relationship to, to themselves, to the one that we grew up with. And I, I mean, I don't really want to speculate what that is, but it, I think it has to do with how external their lives are now. Uh, and that is being brought about by social media. Um, and probably how there is how there is less self-formation uh, early on in life. So you are given more options to choose from, but there's just a series of options that have been prefabricated for you, uh, if that makes sense. Options in terms of? Lifestyle choices, fashion, you know, tastes, political ideas, sexual orientation. You know, you can press the button hmm. and you've got more things to choose from. But you, you are in some senses less limited and in other senses a lot more limited by that. And so this, I mean, this encounter you had with a young student in Germany who is really kind of aghast at the idea of their, of irony being a valid kind of mode of expression. You think that maybe she is somehow at a loss in not being able to enjoy that ambivalence or enjoy that duplicity well, I don't, I mean, I don't think she's necessarily lacking anything in her experience of, of life. You know, I, I'm, I'm not making a sort of judgment on, on, how, on, on how rich or impoverished her life is, you know. Um, and I don't know whether she has a particular mental problem that she's extraordinarily sure of herself. You know, maybe <laughs> that's, maybe that's the, um, but, uh, but I, I think that, in order, it, it just just like the way that I, I was, I mean, I linked it earlier and you, you brought it in with this sort of queer identity stuff where you know what the outside expects from you, but you know what you are on the inside, that what you are on the inside might have a good deal of mirror to it, but there is still, uh, when you're on the inside, a particular position, a particular sort of fixed point and when you're sort of externalizing when you're on the outside when you're presenting yourself as something then you are adopting a different persona perhaps but there is still a point on the inside that is solidly situated to some extent um, and I think that that when I was young was very self-formed um, it was of course cultural influences I mean obviously but it was slightly more weird, weirdly constructed. Um, and I'm not entirely sure if there is that much soul searching. Certainly the young woman I spoke to in Munich presented no soul searching whatsoever. I feel like we're getting towards this point um, um, where there's like a, there's a specific concept that um, encapsulates this conversation it's this idea of i don't know how to pronounce it but sprezzatura yes sprezzatura you pronounced it correct i think yeah and this is a this is a mode of um uh, this is a system of movement as you've described it before um where one appears uh, effortless when in fact one is struggling in a very difficult way to achieve a certain appearance yeah i wonder if you could talk more about that idea and maybe in, in particular how it's 
manifest in your most recent choreography? Um, do you mean the 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 piece at, at the Devines? Yeah. Because I've I've since then I've made a number of other works, but okay. um, uh, um Do you want a sort of brief explanation sure. of it? Yeah, yeah. I, it was coined in 1505, I think, by Baldassare Castiglioni in this book, The Courtier. It's called, and it's basically a manual, uh, a kind of the Prince by Machiavelli version for how to essentially look good and be nice um, and become popular. And so it was a guide to how to make yourself look elegant, lighthearted, not serious, but also not frivolous, um, and pose in a particular series of ways that were natural feeling, so not artificial, but were extraordinarily sort of refined and, you know, delicate. Um, and that is taken up in the 16th and then 17th centuries and it gets mixed up with various ideas of, of sort of heraldic elegance um, and um, and it starts to filter down uh, it, 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 it's really very much transmitted through painting um, and through the 16th century it, it enters widespread use as a way of showing elegance and carving the body out in a in a sort of fluid series of, of lines as shapes and so on um, uh, the perfect spreads of hands are the <clears throat> god creating adam on the sistine chapel ceiling uh, so that sort of thing um, uh, by the sort of it's influenced by, by dance manuals and it influences dance in turn and then by the 17th century it starts to filter down I think and by the 18th century it's in I mean everyday common use in the streets probably earlier actually um, and then in the 19th century it, it moves away it sort of ends up in a deposit in the classical ballet and at the time I think the sort of early 19th century homosexuality is coined as a word and it's clearly deposited in the public imagination in several sorts of people but not others um, the genders begin to separate in terms of expected behavior um one of the things that i was interested in is this idea of a kind of parallel world at uh, the judson church i mentioned yvonne rayner before I yvonne rayner moves in a way that plays on pedestrian movement i.e totally everyday movement um, and very often the perception is that there is a natural way of being because there's a normal way of being. Um, and normal and natural, I think, become very interchangeable in contemporary dance. And um, they are very different. Um, there is nothing necessarily natural about lifting a coffee cup in one way rather than another, because there's nothing particularly natural about a coffee cup. You know, it's a cultural construction. It's not as if, as humans, we were always destined to have coffee cups. Um, but the... Um, the feeling that I got from a lot of contemporary dance practitioners and from a lot of the art world's view of contemporary dance was that you could just say to someone, you know, just, you know, be yourself and this is how my body is meant to sit and this is how my muscles just make me sit and, you know, this is what my muscles are doing and this is, you know, and everything else is highly artificial. The ballet world is very artificial, but this world is very natural, for example. And the... Um, ballet world has a particular set, set of rules that it studies rigorously in order to make particular bodies and make particular shapes 
in the 18th century or 17th century, it would have been entirely the other way around. People would have become so accustomed to a particular set of rules to do with how to pose and stand and sit and hold things that the idea that you would hold your teacup without sticking your little finger out was inconceivable, a little bit like the way that now we laugh at people who hold their little fingers out when they lift a glass up. Um, so the question of how normal something is was interesting and whether there could be a juxtaposition of two different sorts of languages so that we could start to explore this sort of falsified idea of the pedestrian being somehow the way we are as animals somehow, uh, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It was just so striking walking in on that. I had no idea um, it was going on. I just wandered in one day and um, to see these dancers um, occupying a public space that um, museum goers are kind of milling about within. Mm. Uh, but following a very prescribed set of lines mm. and um, executing very exact and very precise motions, sure, uh, yeah, and, and kind of neutralized in terms of their their identity, gender, or otherwise, mm. was completely surreal to me. It was amazing to see. That was the first time I became aware of your work, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that. It just helps a lot to hear you describe these ideas because I feel like so much is encrypted in a performance like that that resonates in a very basic way. But to have the to have these ideas um, to work with as well, especially this idea of of, um, of the posture or the pose or that gesture is in fact uh, always already unnatural or something sure. is uh, exciting. I'm wondering how to end this now. I always have this problem. <laughs> it's fine. You've just done it. Um, yeah, I wonder if, yeah, is that it? I just no, you this, can ask me whatever yeah. you like. Yeah. Um, I can edit this part out. I'm just trying to... Yeah. yeah. Um, just, yeah, take your time. Yeah. I mean, ask me, honestly, ask me if it just ran, a random whatever. I mean, I, I tend to get asked the same questions. Mm -hmm. So... No, yeah, I know. I probably so, asked a few of them already. So, uh, you know... Focus in on whatever you think I have skipped over too glibly. Mm. Do you see yourself, I guess, like, as, as someone who's no longer a part, you're, you're no longer a young artist. And do you, <laughs> do you feel any sense of responsibility to uh, people coming up in terms of um, um, showing guidance or taking them under your wing or... Um, uh, teaching or well I do with people like you because I, I sort of think I, I can sort of empathize because it, it's not entirely clear how you're going to fit into the structure so someone like you I can absolutely imagine you know uh, kind of giving advice to or trying to or feeling you know empathetic or sorry for you or whatever it might be <laughs> um, it, you know I mean you know it's, a, it's an interesting position to be in to not understand how the fuck you're gonna live your life mm -hmm. So if we replace me with just like a broad category of person. No. <laughs> yeah, well, y y in terms of helping a generation of young artists out, I do not give a fuck. I just don't care. There is nothing in the contemporary art world that needs to be in the okay, contemporary art world. Okay, but I want advice right now. So what you're saying, get out. <laughs> well, because, what? I mean, it's, it's more a wish to advise, but I have nothing to say. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fuck knows. 
but the, the young artists that want to work in contemporary art, that's fine. But in order for that to happen, then you have to really be invested in, if you're going to advise people, you have to be invested in contemporary art. You have to sort of believe that it's a necessary thing, that it's important that it exists and so on. And I, I'm not so sure. I believe that, really. I'm not so sure that the sort of whirlwind of the art market, the bullshit of the biennial circles, the, um, the programmes of most institutions in London that are being bought up by big galleries, the kind of rubbish that's regurgitated again and again. I, I don't know if I have anything to say about that. I don't think contemporary art is necessary. I mean, I think there's probably going to be a serious crisis of sorts. There already is a bit of a sort of, of a kind of ideological crisis in contemporary art. We already know that that sort of protest art and um, socially engaged practices op operate on an, on an entirely symbolic level, that they have no real impact in the world. It, you just cannot jump up that way. The, the art world is too weak in numbers and in impact and in strategies to do that. Um, so politics in the art world is symbolic or meaningless. Um, I don't believe that art occupies the space that art claims to occupy. We are not at the technological forefront or at the forefront of ideas or at the... Neither are we at the, at the place where only we can express what people are thinking and feeling. It's, we've lost that. So I would tell people, don't waste your time. If you want to make changes or if you want to have impact, then go and design a car or tie yourself to a tree because the art world isn't going to do anything other than furnish you with a, you know, a, if you're successful with a relatively comfortable lifestyle. I'm, in, I'm just determined to end on a more positive note than that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask you what, um, what keeps you in it then? Um, well, I mean, if, if you're willing to accept that there is no real importance in what you do, and there really isn't, the art world isn't, art, contemporary art is not important. If, if you're willing to accept that, then it's a, it can be, if you're, if you sort of are given the space, or if you create the space, a very liberating environment, you know, a very free space to play around with ideas. But you have to sort of fight for that. Good? All right. Yeah. Thank you, Pablo. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Scaffold. The show is produced by me, Matthew Blunderfield, and the theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Wayworth of the band Stanley Park. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Pablo Bronstein, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.